0: Welcome to One Heart, One Mind, a podcast of the Nampa, Idaho South Stake to inspire and give hope in our efforts to build Zion. And now your host, Kim Keller. Well, welcome to our podcast today, One Heart, One Mind Nampa. I'm Kim Keller. I'm hosting today, and I'm super excited to have Dana and Autumn Stringham here with us today. We're so excited to hear your story. You guys have an amazing story that we know will help people. And when they hear this, they'll be able to work through some issues
1: that I can't wait to hear about. Okay? Yeah. Let's do this. Thanks for having us.
0: Absolutely. So Autumn, I'm going to start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your story, your background?
1: Okay. So this is really personal and it might seem a little weird that I can just blurt it out like this, but I've been sharing this story broadly for a long time and uh, because I do feel like people need to. Understand more about people who suffer with severe mental illness. So, um, I grew up in a family where my parents were great. They were trying to do all the right things. My mom suffered terribly with mental illness, and um, her ups and downs were were pretty brutal. There was there was some violence involved at, at times with um, when she was severely postpartum, things like that. Um, my dad was trying to hold it together. He served as a bishop in our um, Northern Alberta ward. And, um, and he really, he was really doing the best that he could uh, to grapple with things, but they were just never able to get my mom's chemistry under control, you know, medications and, uh, therapists and all sorts of things. It just didn't work out. So I was married at 18, diagnosed, um, just after my 20th birthday after we had our first son. And, um, and just after my 21st birthday, like days after my mother committed suicide. So that was sort of the beginning of, of our really ugly story because it, you know, things kind of went downhill pretty quickly after that. It was at my mom's funeral that we realized or that I was made aware, um, that my grandfather, her dad had also committed suicide. So there's like a really big genetic thing that goes through the family. And then, with the, with the genetics and the the chemistry that goes with that, there's also a lot of trauma because, you know, when someone is really struggling and isn't functioning normally, it, it really does create trauma for the people around them. So um, amidst a bunch of traumatic experiences and then um, coupled with some pretty off-the-wall um, brain chemistry, it was just really, really tough to get on top of that. And so, um, shortly after the birth of our first child, I was medicated. Doctor just assumed that it was a postpartum depression, but the psychosis that went with that new medication—you know, me trying to throw myself out of a moving vehicle, a lot of really dangerous behavior—very um, quickly um, that led them to diagnose me with bipolar. And then rapid cycling bipolar one, and then rapid cycling bipolar one with schizophrenic tendencies, and 13 medications and hospitalizations and all that stuff later, they were actually looking for long-term care facility for me. I got really bad really fast.
0: Wow. That's, uh, that sounds, gosh, that must have been hard for you and for Dana. I mean, I can just imagine being a young husband and father just trying to figure out what to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of the hardest parts for me. is just, I didn't know anything like, you know, when I, when I actually met Autumn, I was just a young guy fresh off my mission because a couple months in and, uh, you know, I remember actually I was invited over to, you know, one of her, actually I met her at her boyfriend's house. Let's be honest. (laughs) That's what happened. It was (laughs) awesome. But I remember just walking in, you know, and she was standing at the top of the stairs and just seeing this beautiful bright eyed, big smile, you know, just, um, so I was immediately like attracted to her. Like, wow, she's, she's super pretty and then of course and I got to know her a little bit you know we laughed we had a lot of fun together that kind of thing and you know just kind of thought that that's how things go and so even as we started to date of course the boyfriend's out at this point of course and you know we start dating doing this thing and it was a it was a really quick sort of courtship we were married what six months later something like that the
1: boyfriend was on a mission in the Philippines so (laughs) yeah
2: that's what happens when you go on a mission right somebody else marries your wife that's how it goes (laughs) but but so anyway so so during that courting period, that time we were dating, you know, there was lots of things that that I look back now and would recognize as being, you know, me- mental illness, I guess, if you will. And and especially like the, the bipolar, the rapid cycling between moods, the highs, the lows, those kind of things. But at the time, I didn't recognize. It was just, you know, a young guy I just thought, you know, this is how girls are and, you know, it's okay, whatever, we'll work through stuff. And that, and that's really kind of what we did. And, and And I think even after, you know, the whole diagnosis and everything else, that was sort of... The attitude that we both had was that, you know, okay, this is a thing. We're you know, we're gonna work through it and we're we're gonna get through it was, was sort of the attitude. That doesn't mean it was easy. Yeah. But I think that that attitude sort of prevailed um throughout the years, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it really was my normal. It's how I grew up. So, you know, dad covering for mom, mom just really struggling and everybody trying to Put a glossy outside on it. Like, Hey, we're just a really great LDS family. <laughs> like just trying to keep it together. So uh, I think that, you know, we were, we tried to be really good at that for a little while. When my doctor diagnosed me, I was actually relieved though, because I just wanted to believe that something could make it better on the inside. And, um, and so I was really happy to take medication to, you know, do my appointments and really try to be just a great patient. And uh, just like to no avail, like it really, it really was not working out for me.
0: So here's the thing for many people who don't, maybe they don't know anybody who's who's mentally ill, but maybe they are in a home with somebody who's mentally ill. So I guess the question is, who's the audience that we're reaching out to? When we talk about this tonight, who do you hope to touch and help? And really what the purpose of this podcast is, is to give hope. How can we give hope to somebody and who are you looking for tonight to to touch with, with the story that we go through?
1: So I'm pretty public about this and I talk to strangers in lines. Like, it's funny how things work. People just want to tell me their story. You know, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this. I have never met anybody that isn't touched by mental illness. It's either it's their mother, it's their brother, it's their best friend from school that just committed suicide. It's their child their stepkid, it, there's always someone in, in people's lives that is hurting. And I think that um, the people that I want to reach most are people who are willing to understand, to have some compassion, maybe to open their minds and realize that there's, there, there may be other options and other things that are um, Im- important to know about in order to help somebody really as a whole person and not just as a, a walking symptom. And yeah, so when everybody. you say
0: that everybody, this, and this is an interesting observation because you mentioned earlier the, this tendency to want to gloss over it, make it look like we're okay and there's no problems. Mm-hmm. It could be easy for somebody living with somebody with mental illness. It could be somebody who works with somebody with mental illness. And you say everybody's affected, but there are people who may not
2: have any idea
0: that they are working with people with mental illness or maybe they're suffering from it to a certain degree themselves. Is that true? Could I, am I correct there?
2: Absolutely. I, I think that's true on, on a certain level. And I think what, you know, what we learned, of course, as we were going through and, and stuff that I learned is there's a major stigma, you know, growing up and the only mental illness I sort of knew about was like, you know, mass murders and you know stuff like that. You think, Whoa, these guys are, are crazy. And so that wasn't the case. Like with Autumn and I, there, there was there was mood swings and there was odd behavior and this kind of thing. But it wasn't. It wasn't like serial murder type of, you know, behavior kind of thing. And there's But but I think people, at least in my case, kind of associate somebody, as soon as they hear, oh, this person has, you know, mental illness or they have bipolar or depression. I, maybe in some cases, people immediately go to the worst case scenario. Oh, yeah.
1: People make some terrible assumptions about that and, and with no those question. labels.
2: I mean, it, it can really be tough on a, on a marriage, on relationships, on work relationships, this kind of thing, because behavior can be so erratic sometimes, right? So... You know, I I never judge anybody for the decisions they make when they're in a relationship, you know, with somebody that has, you know, mental illness kind of thing. But in our case in particular, um, you know, and Autumn in particular was very self-aware knowing that, you know, hey, this is happening right now and I don't want to be like this. You know, and so we would be like together. Okay, you know what? We're going to we're going to go through. We thought at the time it was doctors, it was medications, it was therapy and all that stuff. And we just were going at it. Right. I mean, that's we thought that that's how things were going to get better. Yeah,
1: we just decided we were going to beat it. It didn't work out the way we wanted it to, but it worked out better, I think.
2: Absolutely.
0: Well, let's explore that a little bit. There are times – well, there's certain times where people want to help. Maybe Dana really wanted to help. Maybe people close to you in church really wanted to help. Mm -hmm. What were the things that were helpful and what were the things that were not helpful?
1: Okay, so this just reminds me of a story – and I'm trusting this woman will never hear this broadcast, but <laughs> I as a young married woman and called to be a primary teacher um i could i just i was really unreliable, like super unreliable I couldn't find my manual unreliable and um I was released from the calling, and the president called me and just she just let me have it, and I think she felt like she was maybe mothering a very young girl. Um, but she was she was not kind about it, and <clears throat> I think that she was kind of she was she was kind of approaching it like with the assumption that everybody had equal ability. And I really think that it's important, in especially in the church, that we give each other the benefit of the doubt and realize that if somebody is um, keeping their covenants and showing up to church. They're trying to do their best, so if they're falling short, it's they don't need you to tell them, you know, what they're doing wrong. They need support because there's a reason that they're falling short. Nobody, nobody in the church sets out to um, drop the ball. You know, I think that we're all here and we're all trying, and and sometimes our best is actually all we have to offer. And and so, if somebody is struggling with depression, or um, you know, going into some manias or doing whatever other things, anxiety is a really big one. If they're struggling with that, and that means that they aren't showing up the way that we think they should show up, I think that that's where compassion needs to come in, and not necessarily correction, because people don't deliberately set out to be a disappointment.
0: Give us an example of something that that a, a loving spouse does to help you that was that works for you. Uh,
1: he was unfailingly kind. Perfect. And judgmental
0: Dana, did you ever feel there was a time that you tried, but it just backfired?
2: Oh, well, I, you know, and it's interesting to hear it now. You know, and again, it's fun, to t- not fun, but we talk about this stuff all the time. And a lot of, you know, the really sort of intense time that we went through was 25 years ago. You know, so sometimes, you know, get back in that, that space and you start thinking about all the stuff that we went through. And it was like, how did we even survive? And, you know, I, it's interesting to hear her say, you know, just kind and those kind of things. But at the time, when you're right in it, and when I was right in it, there was times when I was like, I'm out. I don't know what to do. You know, so maybe I did that in my head and my own side, You know, but on the outside, I was like, you know, it's OK. We're going to get through things, you know. And and, but I think that's important for people to recognize, too, that, yeah, of course, you're going to feel it. Right. How could you not feel it? And, you know, we're not going to reveal some of this stuff. Obviously, people know if you're going through it, if you're struggling right now with something, you know what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, just to be able to, to get through it, rely on the atonement, especially, I think, was so important. But at the time, yeah, I, w- I struggled
1: a lot. Okay, an so lot. let me just give you an example of what struggle looks like for Dana Stringham, though, just so that you get it. One time he came home from work, and he had a giant soda in his hand, and I was raised never to drink soda. My mother would literally say, you're going to give up the celestial kingdom for a soda. Like, she was so extreme. And he was totally addicted. So he he came home with a giant soda and I just let him have it in like up the walls and just set the whole place on fire, like so upset and really accusing. He didn't care about me because he cared about soda, like so over the top. And and his big bad reaction, and maybe he did feel like he was giving up on the inside was, you know, okay. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave the house now. And, and he just, he just walked out and I think like went and sat under a tree or something.
2: With another coat. And then he, (laughs) and then he came,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and then he came back kind. And, and, and we actually had a moment. I was washing the dishes or he was washing all the dishes and I was pretending to dry them. And I said, if you knew this about me, this is us making up, you know, if you knew this about me three months ago, would you have married me? And he said, no. (laughs) But, I did marry you and it's forever. And that's when he said the phrase the first time. It's love only, babe. And that's a really, that has stuck with us since our third month of marriage. Every so time. Know, my, my ring. Yeah, <laughs> it's engraved in his <laughs> ring because I lost his first ring in a manic fit. <laughs> anyway, um, the new wedding ring that he has has love only engraved in it. And, and that has been, I think, the, battle cry in our marriage is that it's all about that. At the end of the day, we're in this thing eternally and it's love only. Yeah. And, and
2: I do think too, like in, in so many cases, when we're talking about, you know, an illness such as mental illness, bipolar depression, anxiety, whatever it is you want to call it, um, you know, sometimes it's it's easier to talk about, you know, having diabetes, for example, or, or somebody has cancer or whatever. And you, you kind of, at least you think you know how to handle that kind of thing. People don't want to talk about somebody that has depression or they don't want to talk about their own struggles with anxiety. And and really, that's the wrong thing. If there's one thing that Autumn's done so wonderfully well, you know, in the, in the years since all this intensity is being able to talk about it, like really openly and honestly. In fact, she even wrote a book about her experiences. And I can't tell you how many times people, you know, say, oh, I read your wife's book and, you know, it just really helped me understand what, you know, people are going through. And, and it's amazing to me that there are so many people out there that struggle and think that they're the only ones You know, and so an experience like ours and Autumn's in particular really kind of opens the door to a discussion about really what mental illness is and where the hope is. It's not a hopeless sort of diagnosis thing that you're never, you know, you're going to be crazy forever, quote unquote. It's really not. And I think that's super important for people to understand, too.
0: Well, Autumn, so you said that 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 um, unfailing love, right, And, and kindness was very important for you. What about other people? So let let me explain a dynamic. So let's say that I'm not as... Let's say I have depression or, I, or I'm mad of depression. I'm dealing with something with, similar to what you're dealing with. And I don't really want to talk about it. And I've got my issues. I'm not the best that I can be. What are things that other people um, could be doing that make it easier for me to, to deal with this struggle?
1: I think... Um... If I don't want to talk about it and I want to be private about it, respecting that is important. You know, we don't, we don't all talk about all of our health problems all the time. And then I think that just honestly, like just being kind and accepting and unshockable when, when I do decide to talk about it, because eventually people will talk about it. I've worked with people in the church for, For a couple of years and then had them, and they know how open I am, but it's taken them a couple of years to finally say, actually, me too. Because there's so much shame and there's so much, um, it's just humiliating, honestly, for a lot of people, particularly because the embarrassment or the, well, the, the behaviors that go with mental illness, whether it's neglecting your kids and staying in bed for 16 days or, um, going manic and, you know, doing something really destructive, for your finances or your marriage or whatever. Those kind of behaviors are so embarrassing for people who are really trying to keep covenants and live a rational life. That's hard. It's really hard to, to be open to talk about that.
0: What were some of the uh, things that people have done to help you that has made it easier or, or made it more manageable for you? To-
1: well... I think the first thing for me was having um, my dad step up and really, really search for answers that worked for me. And, you know, I don't think that there's one answer that works for everybody. And for me and my family in particular, and maybe it's our genetic component, there's a lot of people like me um, who who just have responded a lot better to very specific nutrition. And so dealing with it on a practical level, um, with supplementation, getting the right research done, doing that kind of stuff has been really important for me to help me to understand it's not a personality flaw, but there's also some pretty hardcore chemistry involved, and there are certain things that have really worked for me just to get clear-headed. And then once that happened, um, once, I st- once I started thinking clearly and being able to feel and emote normally – and actually, was no longer on um, medications that were really clouding me. Then I really had a lot of healing to do, and that's where people were most helpful in being willing to, you know, talk it through, um, help me through the repentance process, or help me through a forgiveness process, and just kind of going through this whole thing of unraveling a really complex um, entanglement of. Of chemistry and genetics, and behaviors and trauma, and you know all of the things that get wrapped up in this thing we call mental illness.
0: Well, for for followers of Christ specifically, when we make that baptismal covenant to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, Dana, what have you seen from being a spouse? What have you seen that's been helpful for for people, and how can we do better? as a people to help each other, considering that particular covenant.
2: I, I think that's that's a super great point. And, you know, again, going back to that analogy of, you know, somebody that gets diagnosed with cancer, I think immediately we all just kind of, you know, rally around this person and just, you know, hey, we got your back kind of thing. I don't think that should be any different with somebody who, who suffers with, you know, a true depression or anxiety or any, any type of thing. Really, the reaction needs to be the same, if not even more so. You know, regardless of what you, th- and you know, again, it's so true, regardless of what you think you know about somebody or their situation or their family or what they're going through, we really don't. And so a lot of these outward, you know, actions, especially with somebody who suffers with a with a mental illness of type, you might just say, wow, man, that person's a jerk or they're not doing this, they're not doing that. That needs, we need to stop that, right? We really need to step, take a step back and realize that, hey, we don't know what that person's going through, you know, and, and really just be like Christ would be and, and try as hard as we can. To just to show compassion and kindness to everyone. But especially if you have a hint of, of something going on with somebody, then you really need to turn up the, you know, the, the like really crank it up and be like, hey, I need to, to really be kind to this person because they, they're struggling beyond anything that you might even imagine. It's interesting you said because if, if somebody had cancer,
0: like you mentioned before, and they lash out at you, it's like, well, you know, they're really struggling right now. They've right. got cancer. And of course, they're acting like a jerk. Sure
2: right right <laughs>
0: but, but, if it, it, but it's harder for us to be able to recognize that if someone's a mental illness that you know they're just a that's just a bad seed right they're, yep. that's just how they are yep. versus no this there's something deeper that's going on in there.
2: that's yeah. exactly right understanding is super super important and we and we tell people you know again going back to just the people that talked to me about reading her st- story and listening to the or you know reading the book and just having some understanding uh-huh. Of wow, you know, I didn't realize that that was such a thing. Now I recognize this in in my own, you know, family. Or my dad used to be like that. Now I understand why. You know, so so just having a conversation and people really understanding what mental illness is and what it is not, I think, is super important in terms of just being able to act more compassionately.
1: One of the best comments I've ever had back in you know fan mail from people who have read my book um, was a was a from a woman who said that she now felt like she could forgive her parents. And she just – she had grown up not understanding what they were – mom in particular was suffering and, you know, had blamed her dad for allowing things to happen. And and when she read it, um, all playing out in my life story, she just – she was able to see it in a completely different way. I think that, um yeah, seeing, seeing mental illness for what it is and understanding the many faceted parts of it really opens us up to forgive and to just let a lot of things go that that are super hurtful and let's be real mental illness is not like cancer because they might people might lash out when they're in pain but i have said and done the most hurtful things um at times when i was so sick and i think at the time it seemed like i meant them like it it, i didn't i wasn't childlike about it you know you can be very very cruel
0: so you're saying well, this it, it's issue like cancer that's more like a, i'm in pain and i'm lashing out but but when it's mental illness that that part of your body that's sick is it's your also, brain yeah it's your <laughs> brain so it's got a lot more stuff going on to be yeah talking about and being angry about and, and nothing
1: and it's not like you become unintelligent you're like right. you can be calculating and cruel and i and i know that i have been I, and i think that that's that's the important thing to realize. So so for me, when I got my chemistry straightened out, I had to figure out, number one, how to get past the humiliation of what I had been and done and then forgive the illness. That was the first thing for me was just being able to realize, okay, this was this was put on me for whatever reason, for many, many reasons. It, it's It's the end result of a lot of different factors. And I didn't ask for any of that, but at the same time, it's, it's mine to deal with, and now I have to find ways, and ultimately through the atonement, yeah. to really be able to let that go. i so want to go
0: next, because this, um, this is kind of a key part of, of this podcast and this discussion, is finding hope through Christ, finding hope with a Zion society, with each other, the atonement. So tell me how this works. How did the Lord play a part in, in your life, in your marriage, and how the atonement work in?
2: That, that's huge. That's massive. Uh, that, that's a, you know, and it's a great question because, you know, again, going back to those early days when we were right in the thick of things and really struggling with a lot of different things in and out of hospitals, doctor visits and all that kind of stuff. Super stressful. You know, brand new baby, all this kind of kind of stuff that we we're going through initially. I, I think that's the thing that we, we both latched on the most was hope, right? The hope that we were going to that things were going to get better, that eventually we would get through this. We didn't really know what that was going to look like at the time, but we both had that hope. Well, looking back now, realizing, well, that hope is Jesus Christ. Like, absolutely it is. Indeed. And even at the time, maybe when I didn't you know, always think of heavenly father or Jesus at the, in the moment, that hope is exactly what that was. And I realize that now more in my life, more than ever, that when we hope for something and even when you're in the struggles of things, that is the power of Christ in our lives, manifesting you know, that hope into our lives. So I think anytime we speak of hope, we're speaking of the Savior. Absolutely,
1: ultimately. I know that's true. I and I, th- I think even just by hoping, when you can't see the end of the tunnel, just having that hope, that wish that something could be better, is giving the Lord permission to act, to act in our behalf. Absolutely, I know that He doesn't force Himself on us, even when we're mentally ill. Like there's still choices and decisions that I had to make, and and um, and as ideas came, you know, to Dana and little bits of inspiration came to me at, at times when I could feel the light, um, we were able to kind of get to a place where where healing could begin to happen. And, and that was just the, a big turning point for me. I had um, – and I actually used writing as uh, the thing to start. So um, years after I was – off of medication and had done enough physical healing that we were actually able to become pregnant again. Like we were told we would never have any more children. Um, there was just a lot of damage done. And one of the medications I had taken had done some major, um, upheaval with hormones and things. So they said that we wouldn't ever have any more. But, you know, miracles happen. So I found myself expecting our, our first daughter. And I knew that I needed to be able to have a decent mother-daughter relationship with her, and so I had to do some forgiving. And that's when I started writing. And I wrote every morning for years, (laughs) and just a huge amount, like prolific writing. And then I would kneel down and read it back to the Lord and ask him if it was true, because there's so much cloudiness and so much stuff when you're dealing with childhood memories and trauma that... It's really hard to figure out what is actually real, like what is true. And I learned that he will testify through the spirit of all things that are true. So by putting it down on paper and then asking an honest question, kind of like Elder Scott taught us to do in his October 2009 talk, it was brilliant, I love it. But, you know, learning how to recognize truth even when we've been prompted or had a memory and then go back to it again and again and and kind of boil things down that's where the real forgiving started for me and as I wrote through my life story and my experience with my parents my experience as a mentally ill person and then as a person who was healing and trying to figure things out I realized that not everything that I thought was the whole truth that that it's It's more complicated than that and that there were other people's feelings involved and that just as much as I was a victim, I was also a perpetrator. And that took me to a place of deep grief. And I guess it took me to a place of repentance because, you know, I realized that there are burdens I was carrying that weren't mine to bear at all and I had no business hauling my mother's stuff around, you know, or her mother's stuff around. And after a while you just realize that you don't get to be angry at anybody and you don't get to blame anyone because it's it's such a mess. Only the Lord can sort it out. And and that is that um submission I think that happens with a real change of heart. And I experienced that in just it was it was a miracle for me.
0: Isn't it amazing? We expect and hope that the Lord will forgive us. And we always talk about becoming like our heavenly Father, but the the best and most poignant way of becoming like Him is doing what He does and forgiving someone. Yeah, we talk, we think it's about doing all these good things, and then I'll then I'm close to being perfect. But being like God is just learning how to forgive, because yes. that's what He does. So if we're gonna be like Him, we better forgive, we better give grace, we better be merciful, because that's what it really means to become like Him. It's not checking off a bunch of boxes and get a lot of stuff done. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? We just no, anyway. That is so
2: true. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
0: Share some thoughts, Dana, on the same thing.
2: Well, it, you know, in, in everything you just said is absolutely true. Getting to that point where we recognize that really it is about forgiveness and becoming as close as we can to, to the way the Savior behaves. You know, really studying, you know, it was interesting this last conference, you know, that the attributes of Christ, I heard that so many times, you know, and, and, and trying to become more like our Savior. That really is our goal. And as we study the attributes of Christ, the kindness, the compassion, the forgiveness, all of these things, and we do our best to act like that, then you know, we do become... And it is a little bit easier day by day to, to exercise those, you know, and act like the Savior would act. And just be a little bit more kind, a little bit more understanding, less judgmental, all of these things that our Savior is. And that takes time. You know, it's not an easy thing. But I think if we have that as our ultimate goal, then, uh, then we can make it through any challenge. You know, the challenges we've been through together... That's that's been our uh, that's been our desire, our hope is to just act like the Savior would as much as we possibly can, and just and just keep going forward, one step at a time.
0: Yeah. Did you notice a time? Did you notice this, this change uh, uh, with with the, with the atonement in her life? Did you notice something? Was there was there a time where it changed took place, or was it pretty gradual over time?
2: I, I think it's kind of maybe a little bit of both. That you know there was a certain point in time where you know once we started to kind of see some healing for Autumn in particular that she started to question everything and that was a good thing you know including do i really believe in church you know do i oh, believe no. in the savior all this kind of stuff
1: i started taking i took the missionary discussions all over again yeah like i had a major crisis of faith major because if if the things that i thought were true during all of those years of like pretty serious illness and i'm suddenly getting some clarity and realizing wait a second okay so which part of that was real at, I I was ready to throw the whole thing out. And if it wasn't for temple covenants and my need to know that I was absolutely right in doing so, um, that's what brought me to a place of taking the discussions again and just not wanting to like – I didn't want to break promises that I'd made. So I tried really hard to hang on to that while taking the discussions and just questioning everything right from – I and that was in the first couple of years of recovery, right? So – but I I saw
2: that as a good thing, you know, a very positive step, you know, that ultimately I knew and, and I think she knew that she would feel you know what was absolutely right by questioning things. And if there were questions that you had, what you did have, you know, just being able to, to ask those honestly with the expectation you would get, you know, an honest answer in return.
0: So in reality, you were basically becoming born again. Exactly. exactly. Totally,
1: and and I think that happened twice. I think it happened when when my physical health changed, and I was no longer on a five drug cocktail and like drooling, but actually able to feel and emote normally and experience life in a new way. It allowed me to ask questions that I didn't care about the answers before. So I suddenly was able to think on a different level, and so I had a physical healing that became a bit of and that linked to a spiritual crisis. But then it was. Years later, I realized there was more healing to be done because I was still angry, and um, and and that's when I had to start into that whole writing and forgiving and working through. And you can't do that when you're when you're in survival mode, though. Like if you're just trying to figure out how to get a good night's sleep and how not to fly off the handle in the daytime, like just functioning as a person until you get your chemistry straightened around. It's really hard to think on a about. Other important things like repentance and forgiveness, like that's just not even on the – it's not on the radar, right? So these things have to come in stages. I really think that people need to realize there's a physicality to mental illness. No matter how people got there, there's a reason that they're there and there's a physicality. It actually does affect your brain and your functioning. And until you can find out what works for you and get that part straightened out, it's really hard to be a spiritual giant or read your scriptures, or even say a prayer that doesn't bounce off the ceiling. Like, it's hard to feel in tune with anything. All of the most important things are out of reach until you can get the chemistry straightened out. And that's why it's an illness and not a personality problem. It's, it's real.
0: Oh my gosh. Thank you. Well, as we get to closing now, just any last-minute thoughts that could help maybe inspire somebody out there who who is suffering and doesn't know what to do, or who is uh, living with or close to somebody who is in that
2: situation. I think you know you know again living with somebody or somebody's out there and they're struggling or with somebody who is experiencing you know mental health challenges. Uh, patience is absolutely the key. Like everything you just said about you know figuring things out and and then going to the next step. That takes incredible Isn't amount that of patience. A godly attribute too? It is <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly right, and, and I think we re- need to remember that. And you know, we're all the same. We kind of want instant results, and especially in today's world, everything is pretty much instantaneous, right? But especially in a case like this, and and I, I, maybe that applies to other types of illnesses and healing. But patience is so key. Like just, but understanding and realizing that you know you'll get through things, but you've got to be patient, and it's one step at a time. And in particular, when it comes to you know, mental health challenges. There's no question. You just patience is key.
1: Mm. Because of the discovery that my dad made, I have the opportunity daily to be in contact with women like me who have been, I think there were eight of them in a, in a meeting with me today on a Zoom, and we were talking about our experiences. Most of these women have experienced what I've enjoyed for at least six or eight years. And it, I think that the the incredible connection between us is is this is this idea that um we're so grateful that we're alive. So if there's somebody that's heard this podcast and um is struggling with feelings of suicide or hopelessness, I would just want them to know that there's a whole other side to this and that um and that the Lord is mindful of them and that you know, as all of us have had our story, uh, these women and I sharing our stories of divine intervention and how we were just like plucked out of this awful place and helicoptered into something better and then still had work to do. But th- realizing that the Lord answers prayers and is mindful, maybe this podcast is a part of that answer for somebody else, you know, And just that there's hope. Don't give up just because the 17 things you've tried didn't work. It doesn't mean that the next thing won't and and that there's a process ahead that is healing and beautiful and life is totally worth living and you know checking out now isn't going to feel any better on the other side it's it's okay to stay and and to work it out and there's answers and hope for everybody down somewhere somewhere there's hope for everyone
0: well this has been amazing this has been wonderful thank you thank you both for coming and joining us tonight and uh... May you go on and continue to do great things for people. And, and thank you for your example. And uh, gosh, i
1: just can't stop saying thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been wonderful. It's been really, it's really great. Nice. Thank Thanks a lot.
2: Thanks for listening to One Heart, One Mind Nampa. Credit is given to Kim Keller, who oversees the podcast, both Lindy Bauer and Kim Keller, who are our hosts, Casey Maddox, the project director and announcer, Rachel Bauer, who was our site director. Likewise, thanks also to Michelle Lundgren, our project manager, John Freeman, our communications coordinator, Jesus Gomez, the key grip and podcast editor, as well as Don Ricker, our digital platform manager.
0: Thank you for listening to One Heart, One Mind. We hope that you have felt inspiration and hope in moving towards Zion. As always, thank you. And may the Lord bless you.